Hey, what's up, Blondheads? Have we got a good one for you this time? A little while back ago, we interviewed Alan Hornblum, uh, investigative journalist and author. We talked to him about some of the projects he's worked on, and one that came up was called his book called Confessions of a Second Story Man. It was all about the K&A gang. And uh, for this episode, Alan has actually hooked us up with Chick Goodrow, an actual K&A gang member from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And he sat with us at O'Neill's Pub, talked about joining the K&A gang or the Irish Mafia as it was known back at the time, and what it was like living as a burglar, a successful burglar for many years. He's done many stints in prison. He lived a fast lifestyle, lots of cash, fast cars, beautiful women. His wife was even a Playboy playmate. So we talked to him about life back then, life on the run, living in Boca, Florida, a time when he was in Hawaii and tried twice to break into Don Ho's penthouse and raid that for some jewelry and cash and a bunch of other cool stuff. It's a fascinating interview with a really interesting person. We think you'll really enjoy this piece of curious and quirky Philadelphia history. So uh, buckle up, sit down, enjoy this interview with one of the actual K&A gang, second story men, Chick Goodrow. And as always, follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, all YouTube, all that stuff, all as the Philly Blunt. And tell all your friends what we're doing here. We're really looking to preserve some history of Philly and then shine a light on some people doing interesting, cool things, either in the current or in the past. And, uh, you know, spread the word. Tell your friends and family to check out the Philly Blunt. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Philly Blunt. My name's Johnny Goodtimes. This is Greg. And uh, Reef is not able to make it. Steph uh, made him stay home tonight. So we are filling in uh, with actually one of our recent guests, Alan Hornblum. How, Alan, welcome to the show. Very good to join you. I've been waiting for this for years, and, and so it's a uh, sort of a dream come through to be with the Blunt Brothers. Yes, obviously. <laughs> obviously a huge, uh, huge dream for you. And, uh, and we are very excited. Uh, a little bit weird. This is our first non-Zoom interview in, uh, what, since February 2020. Yeah, I'm, I'm indoors without a mask for the first time. And right, Not too. feeling too super relaxed right now. That's, uh, that's true, too. But we are excited about today's uh, uh, about today's podcast. We are t- chatting with uh, the one of the subjects of Alan's book, The Second Story Boys. We are talking to Chick Goodrow. Chick, Chick welcome to the show. Hello, Thank you. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Happy to still be alive. All right. Well, I yeah, I'm sure. So I want to take it back. Uh, I want to take it back. You know, all the way to the to the beginning. Did you grew up uh, right around K and A? Grew up right around K and A. And where uh, where in that neighborhood were you? Around F and Allegheny. Okay. Block, block off of K and A. Okay. And then what was the when you were you know just as a young guy? What was the neighborhood like? As far as uh, nationality, it was basically Irish and Polish. Predominantly white. Uh huh. And what was your background? As far as what? As far as like nationality. Well, I my mother was mixed. My father was Jewish. Okay. And then so you you grow up in uh, in that environment, and uh, you I guess at some point came into contact with some guys that were in the neighborhood that were, uh, in the words of the Fresh Prince, up to no good. Yeah, it's just a matter of growing up. I mean, hung in the corner, you hung in horn and hardest. And it just uh, was a natural 
procedure. You know, it just you just happen to happen to be there and happen to happen to go along. So, right. So the Horn and Hardit was the uh, like the vending machine. Kind pretty of much. Place? Yeah. And that was a happening spot. That was it, man. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody was hanging at Horn and Hard Art, getting their uh, getting their food out of the yeah. little uh, the little container openings. Yeah, yeah. And, and at night it was the bank step with K and A. The bank step or the bank wall? <laughs> yeah. What was that? Yeah. What happened at the wall? They just hung out. Yeah. So were you guys just hanging out, bored, nothing to do, and you decided you were uh, going to look for some trouble, or what was the? Uh, you know how did uh, obviously you've uh, as as documented by Alan's book, uh, the Second Story Boys. Uh, you eventually found some trouble. Uh, how did that? How did that start? Well, you really it, you can't pinpoint how it started. It just gradually happened, and you wandered into it. It wasn't like oh, let me plan to do this or plan to do that. Right. I mean, you might have been sitting in Horn and Hornets with a g- bunch of guys, and somebody say, "Hey, want to take a ride? Want to do a do a little piece of work? Yeah, all right." And that's what, what, what I'd like to underscore here that, that's being left out a bit is that by the time Chick becomes of, of age to commit crimes, we're talking 15, 16, 17, there's already an ethic. There's already a, a rug, a platform of criminality, and it focused on second story work. It was burglary. Now, you have criminals coming out of every neighborhood of the city, but what was unique about Kensington is that it became a hotbed of burglary. There was a guy named Willie Sears, a good 15, 20 years or more older than Chick, who comes out of the Second World War. He doesn't want to work in one of the factories. Kensington is loaded with sweater factories and dress factories and all sorts of textiles. They have Felco there. They have uh, Cramp Shipyard. They, they have Baldwin Locomotive. It was easy to get a legitimate job. But guys like Chick, as he said, they wanted to hung out, hang out. They wanted to chase the girls. They wanted to buy a car every year, you know, and, and they didn't want to put in a full day's work for, yeah. for what they considered chump change. So they gravitated to criminal activity, and by the time he comes up, burglary, forming a team and doing what was called, what was the term? Progressive? No, not progressive. What was the term for the uh, second story work? See, he's getting up in years and he forgot already. <laughs> but there was a specific term they had for doing this type of work. And a lot of guys recognize that you could make a lot of money, and if you got caught, you won't get much time. Mm-hmm. And so one kid after another who wanted to lead that sort of life got into it, and they would try to hook up with the known players, the better burglars, who had the cars, who had the clothes, who would get up at 12, they show up at a bar at 3 or 4, they'd be out all night long, they had the girls, and that's what attracted these guys. Also, and, also, the Pottsville heist was a major stepping stone because there was so much money that people just, uh, oh, maybe we can find $400,000. Right. Well, tell, tell us more about the Pottsville heist. Well, I'm not really that familiar with it, except that the crew that worked there, Lillian Reese, well-known showgirl. Yeah. Uh, Junior Stano. Right, right, right. Her yep. boyfriend. John Berkeley, who was a, a neighborhood guy, Bobby Polson, and uh, and one of the Blaney brothers, and that uh, that's how the money. I mean, that's how it started. It started with a tip that Louie got, passed it on to Junior. Junior incorporated Berkeley, and they went up to Pottsville, 
they weren't expecting that kind of money. But when they got it, it changed everything. It wasn't a secret around Kensington. Everybody, oh, wow, maybe I could go. But in the backside of that is that Polson and Blaney didn't really get a fair share. Berkeley got most of it. Lillian Reese and Stando got most of it. So they complained. Blaney wound up getting shot and killed because of it. His brother, who was in jail, hears about it. Here's who does the deed. He starts fat-mouthing, and one day uh, he gets on a Sunday, goes out to his car, gets in it, and it blows up in Kensington. First Philadelphia car bombing ever, correct? Could have been. Yeah, pretty much. And that's from Fat Mouthin? For Fat Mouthin. He got blown up. And then and Polson got stabbed and kidnapped, but he survived. And he just kept quiet after that. So but the, the word goes out throughout the community that you can make a lot of money doing burglaries. So rather than guys going in, like in Boston, they did uh, bank jobs. You know, the Boston crew, you know, right. the Winter Hill gang under Bolger and, and all of those guys, they were you, you know used to using a gun and laying people down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Philly guys, the burglars out of Kensington, didn't even carry weapons. It's one right. of the things they were known for. And the cops could always tell when it was a Kensington K&A job because of the, uh, the signs. You know, nobody was hurt and uh, nobody used a weapon. And, uh, you know, it was just passed down from uh, one guy to another, whereas a whole generation gravitated to uh, doing burglaries. And a lot of guys, like Chick, made a good bit of money on it. Yeah, they periodically had to do some time, and Chick could knock off to you the various prisons that he's been at, mm-hmm. but they were all pretty short sentences, correct? Yeah, a lot of three, 23 months, six to 23 months, mm-hmm. nothing serious. Was part of that because you guys didn't carry the weapons, right? So that right. was kind of a strategic thing because you knew if you did get caught, the time was going to be pretty short, right? Right. But once we, once you graduated a little bit and you, you left Philadelphia and, and the the Jewish clientele that we robbed in Philadelphia moved to City Line Avenue, Montgomery County, which I became infamous for, which hurt me in the long run over the years. But then we graduated to upstate Pennsylvania, and then we graduated throughout the country. I mean, I wound up in Hawaii and, you know, wherever. <laughs> right. Chick, you say this, the, you, the time you did was like three months, 23 months, not a lot. Right. So it seems like a lot to me, but is like eight months just not a deterrent back then for not you? Not then, no. No? Uh, no. It was the cost of doing business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and you said, you know, you said the thing you just did about, I, I know uh, from the book about, like, saying the that. book to, you didn't read. Well, <laughs> I read excerpts. I read excerpts. I didn't read the whole thing, Chick. Um, but I, uh, I, one thing I did read is that you guys typically like to find houses that were owned by Jewish people. What, 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 was, the, what was the reasoning behind the that? Motivation, the right. motivation is that's where the money was. That's where the jewelry was. That's where the fur was. That's where the coin collections were. They were, and it was easier to spot a Jewish house because, for the majority of them, all had mezuzahs on the door. The second thing we looked for was alarm system. Back then, in dark areas, 
when you were riding down the street, they had the little red light. They didn't have the sophistication they have today. Mm. And you see this little red light, and it'd be blinking, saying, hey, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. And then the mezuzah would say, I'm here, there's money, there's money. And that's how it all begun. That's the irony. Most people were buying alarm systems to protect what they had, and they would thought that would prevent them from being robbed and deter criminals. In fact, the K&A gang was attracted to that. <laughs> because it meant they had stuff. It, it meant they had stuff, and these guys either had the keys to the front door or they had a brute, which was a, a big-ass screwdriver that could pry open any door. And they knew how to do it. They had a system of three or four guys. One guy would stay at the front window or front door and keep an eye out for the owners or cops. And then another person would, you know, go to the bedroom where most people hide their possessions. Another person would go through the rest of the house. And you could clean out a house in five minutes. Then you would go on to the next one and the next one. So they would travel into an upscale area like Cary, North Carolina, which is known for money and prominence and, and good taste. And over the course of a weekend, you know, knock off 10, 15 houses and, you know, pull off uh, an easy half million with regard to coins and uh, artwork and, you know, money that was hidden and then silverware. silverware. Silver. Mm -hmm. A lot of silver back then, but you didn't get the money you got for it today. Right. If I did, I wouldn't be here doing this interview. <laughs> So, so the alarms weren't a deterrent. We were, was it because alar uh, our alarms, the second floor, were not alarm? Or well, did they, they were just a simple loudmouth outside. That was pretty much it. Um, loudmouth being the box that rang, yeah. and we had, like Alan said, we had keys, hmm. and you know I could get in a lot of these houses faster than people could with the uh, the key and the, the their own key. <laughs> right. Right. Now, you said earlier that you are Jewish, correct? Right. But most of the guys you were hanging out with were Irish? Is right, that right? Right. Was That's there why any... it was called the Irish mob. <laughs> right. Got it. <laughs> but was there any sort of like, how did you come in with that group? What, weren't things a little bit more sort of a, I was bifurcated back then? I was a neighborhood guy. It didn't okay. matter what you were. Okay. Got it. And then... When did you guys start saying, you know what, we're going to go outside the city to start doing some of these I things? I don't know if anybody ever said, let's go here, let's go here. Uh, somebody would just say, hey, I hear there's a lot of Jews up in uh, Manhattan or let's go up there or whatever. Uh -huh. It's just, it just a natural... You right. just, they just, you know, like Willie Sutton, right, why sure. did he rob banks? Right, right. Okay, right. well, these guys were the same thing. They went where they perceived the money to be. So after they worked the hell out of, uh, let's say, Chestnut Hill and Haverford and Radnor and Villanova, the main line, then they started, you know, going out because they were doing so much work and making so many killings. Uh, the police really started to tackle this inundation of, of criminals and so it was smart for them to move outside the area's borders and you would go up to Princeton, you would go to Pennington, you would go to Hazleton, you would go to, you know, uh, Teaneck, New Jersey or the Oranges or you would go down to, you know, uh, the outskirts of Baltimore, wherever they perceived wealthy people to be, that attracted them. So they were going from Bar Harbor up in uh, Maine down to uh, Boca in Florida. 
Mm-hmm. And you just kind of saw this as being a profession? Did you? Hey, you didn't even think about it. It's just it's something you just did. It's a way mm-hmm. to make money. So right. did, did your family members, did people in your life know this is what Not you were doing? really. I mean, you didn't really advertise it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh-huh. Did you have like a day job that they thought you were making no. your money at? No. Day job was I mean, sleeping. first of all, my mother <laughs> raised me, so I didn't have a whole lot of uh, to explain to. Do you remember your first job? I remember my first job. Mm. See, he's first pinched on the West Coast. Yeah. On my 18th, around my 18th birthday, I went to California and had a a little incident that they charged me with uh, a burglary. It wasn't really a burglary, but I wound up in Santa Monica, and then they transferred me over to L.A. County, which was a horror spot. (laughs) <laughs> back even back then, we're talking right. 1959, 1960. Right. Um, but I managed to get out of that by leaving, going back to Philadelphia. They were going to give him a nice sentence until he said, or an attorney said, "We'll cut your ass a break. You know, you get the hell out of town, and you know we'll forget about this. Otherwise, you know, they were going to give you a sentence." My first Philadelphia burglary, if I can remember was I think the St. Georgia Club on Fifth Street, me and a, another guy named Mike uh, Mitchell Prinsky, and I wound up in Moore Menson. And, but that was for a couple months. Mm-hmm. And you then got, You got caught on your first job? No, oh. I mean, I, you asked me what it, the first one I remember oh, yeah. getting locked in. I don't remember a first job. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, you, you spent some time in Eastern State, correct? Went through it. Like on, like on a tour? Or? Now I do tours. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually a card-carrying member Are here. You? Yeah. <laughs> they send me cards. They send me free... Uh, You're a VIP. You're a VIP yeah, in Eastern State. Who'd have, who'd have thought? You know, we could, <laughs> nobody's left. Everybody's they, dead. They used to have the annual reunions. They had to cut it out because all the guards and inmates have uh, died off. Wow. He's one of the last of the K&A burglars. Right, right, right. So you guys, you know, you start going across the country, and were there any particularly memorable uh, hits? Were there any particularly memorable times when you're like, either you you came across a ton of money or you ran into somebody you weren't expecting? The Pottsville heist is the only one that I can actually say there was a large thing of money. The way we worked, you got... You got jewelry, you got furs, you got silverware, you got coin. It never went one place. It by it got spread out. So and then the, uh, obviously cash. But so it never uh, really uh, say, "Well, I made a hundred thousand today." Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You could have made a hundred thousand, but it took you weeks to put it together. Right. Like, right. what did a big job pay? Like in the sixties? Oh, you, you were good for five thousand yeah. at, at night without yeah. problem. Each or total? Well, back then, uh, you wound up... Uh, I didn't work that long with with groups as much as the mo- most of the burglars. Chick, Chick was unique in a way in that he liked working by himself. Okay. There were two advantages. <laughs> number one, you didn't have to split the take with anybody. Right. And number two, you didn't have to worry about anybody ratting you out. Right. Right. Sure. Was that a was that a big concern? Like, what 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 was the sort of the trust factor at that time when you're doing a job with somebody else? Are you nervous? So this guy might snitch. This guy might uh, get me in trouble. He might be an informant. Like, what? How how was trust with that group back then? You really didn't have that 
problem to deal with. I mean, um, it's not like today where if you get locked up, they're giving you 50 years. You know what I mean? Right. You were faced with three months or six months. I did get ratted on by two extremely tough guys from the neighborhood that for four crimes that I actually didn't do. It was probably my biggest bit. Mm. Wow. And I actually didn't do these burglars. Mm-hmm. And uh, got sold out by the two judge. I mean, the two lawyers I had. And um, I remember the second day of trial, the, my lawyer came to me and said, "Well, the judge feels if it wasn't these four, it was four others." <laughs> and, and I'm telling you, I didn't do these four. Cause right. The one, two of them happened on my wife's birth, birthday, and we were in a club called Ski Always up at Six and Pike. Did you uh-huh. um, did you ever see the the guy who ratted you out? Did you ever see? Yeah, him later he was on? around. I mean, but he was he was a really tough guy. Yeah, I mean, he. Uh, you want to jump you, in? You, with you this? just you just did the bid quietly and tried to stay out of well, the way. I know. I I managed to get out of it eventually. I mean, I was sentenced to sixteen months to ten years, and I oh. I, um, I wound up having to cut down to sixteen months to thirty two months. The guy who ratted him out was. If he wasn't a professional boxer, he was the equal of a professional boxer. And I heard stories from guys in Trenton State that he actually knocked down, knocked down a very well-known boxer who was doing time. So he was a tough guy in the neighborhood, and uh, you'd only uh, turn on him or confront him if you were packing. You know, you certainly wouldn't want to take him to the back alley because it's your <laughs> right. head. Yeah, you were right. Because the guy who used to knock people out with one right, right. punch. Uh-huh. Right. right. You, gotcha. would, you wouldn't need a car bomb for that guy. Yeah. yeah. You really yeah. would. Um, you guys want uh, want anything to drink? Get you uh, a glass of wine? or? I've a, yeah, I've had a glass of, of rosé. All right. Get something. Uh, Check, what can we get for you? Glass of wine. Okay. Uh, Greg, can you grab... Uh, Any kind of wine or... You know what? Give me an absolute on the rocks. There you now go. Now we're talking. I just realized now he's in an Irish bar. It was like wine in a box. Yeah, give me a, an absolute. All right. Now we're twist. talking. Now we're talking. <laughs> in a brandy sniffer. <laughs> you are... Uh, you know, so you're 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 doing these in the in the sixties and seventies. Is there a point where you're saying, Okay, this isn't a long term career decision, I need to make a move, or were you always just like on to the next one? On to the next. Mm-hmm. I mean when I work by myself, like I could work one day and not work for three, four months. Wow. You know. Yeah, that's that's tough to beat. But he also worked with a crew. You know, there were I guys. Did work with a crew. He, he went out to Scottsdale and he went other places. You were typically working by yourself. What was a what would a night be like? Are you are you scoping the scene out and then coming back later? Yeah, are I, you what, what what's what's the typical day in the life like at that time? Well, I did a lot of a lot of day work. When people were out, okay, and uh, there was periods where I I actually cased the joint and then went back, had some idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. A lot of it had to do with parking. When you're by yourself, parking becomes a major problem. Mm-hmm. Plus, 
trying to carry a safe out by yourself. It's not easy. <laughs> right. Tell them about your South, your South Jersey yesterday. Uh, that was a nightmare. <laughs> so I'm down in South Jersey, outside of Atlantic City, and I'm in a house, and there's a relatively large safe, and it's on the second floor. I'm pretty sure it's got a lot of money in it. So I'm struggling. I get this thing. I drop it down the steps, roll it down the steps, get it out. I had a, a big Buick back then. So I get it in with a lot of effort. I get it in the trunk of the car, but it's not in really good. So I leave. Now I'm thinking to myself, I got to tighten this up a little bit. So I pull back in the wetland and I secure the trunk and, and it's still sticking out. Because of that, when I get back on the road, the first highway I get to, or first main street that I get to, they're setting up a roadblock. And I'm practically the first car there. <laughs> and they stop me and they, uh, they, well, you know, what do you got and this and this. Meantime, the car's running and I get out and the guy says, well, you gotta open the trunk. Well, I'm not opening the trunk. So they're going to open it. So I get back in the car and speed off. They shoot the car out. I crash the car, roll into the wetlands, and I'm in the wetlands for two days because they got the circumference of where I'm at surrounded with cops parked on the highway at night with dogs. And uh, after the second night, they broke up and... I managed to get back. I was living in Brigantine at the time, so uh, that was one. That was one bad story. Well, <laughs> what? Well, I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious. Did, did they? I guess they held on to the safe, huh? Yeah, there was forty thousand dollars in it. Oh man, that, that was in nineteen. I want to say nineteen around seventy-two, seventy-three. Okay. Gotcha. Well, Alan, uh, while, while uh, Chick's having a drink, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, about the book and about um, uh, you know and about talking to Chick as you were doing research for the book and maybe some of the stories that you remember um, that you particularly enjoyed writing about. Well, Chick is interesting in a number of ways. Uh, he wasn't just the youngest. He wasn't just one of the few who was comfortable enough to commit crimes by himself. Because a lot of guys, even though they may be tough guys and can fight in the back alley, they don't want to work alone. They want to work with a crew. It's just, you know, uh, they, they feel more comfortable. Uh, but Chick, interestingly enough, reached out to me when I was doing the book. When I'm doing the research on it and hanging out at a lot of shot and beer joints in the river wards, running from uh, Frankfurt down to... Uh, you know, uh, Port Richmond and, uh, you know, other parts of the city along the river uh, because the K&A gang was a mythic crew and a lot of families in those neighborhoods knew of them. I was being written about by Stu Bykovsky, who was a longtime columnist in the city. He was fascinated with what I was doing. And those little articles would generate feedback. People would call me back, cops and burglars. They want to be interviewed. Chick was one of them. You know, a lot of burglars threatened me, criminals, that if I put their name in the book, I'd find myself in the Delaware with, you know, concrete boots on. Right. And uh, there, but there were others at the other end of the spectrum 
they didn't mind being identified. It was sort of maybe the high point of their lives and career and, and whatever. So it ran the gamut. But uh, Chick and I have, have done talks uh, in Chestnut Hill and Center City and you know, historical societies and, and whatever. Because a lot of people, you know, find, find this whole, you know, <laughs> episode and, and era pretty interesting. You know, uh, the, the burglars of Philly had a national reputation. And some people may consider that bullshit or hyperbole. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who was calling different uh, police uh, operations in North Carolina and Florida and Maine and all over... They would confirm, yeah, we were inundated with, you know, the Irish mob out of Philly back then. Mm-hmm. And they ripped the shit out of our, our upscale communities. We never knew who the hell was doing it because they were so good. They were far better than any of the local criminals they had because they had a, uh, a system uh, that, that was very successful. Mm-hmm. thing I think is interesting is starting 50 years ago, there, there, it seemed like maybe there was sort of a shift in terms of the public's perception of it with Godfather and sort of the gangster lifestyle becoming somewhat glorified instead of, instead of maybe being looked down upon. Did, did you feel like that was uh, a thing? Obviously, that was the Italian mob, and it was very different than what you guys were doing. But did you feel any sort of shift in public perception of what you were doing? Well, we were very popular back then because we spent money like it was water. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it it would be nothing to tip somebody at the door for a $100 There's a chapter in the book called The Robin Hoods of of Kensington because they did spend their money. They're buying one or two Lincoln Town cars a year. They're going into bars and, and dropping money like crazy and taking the girls out and buying suits from local haberdashers. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, and, and, and they did not beat up people in Kensington, the row houses or the businesses there. They were going outside the area where there was serious money, then coming back to the neighborhood to spend it. Mm-hmm. Is that, was there ever any sort of uh, moral qualm? Did you feel with what you were doing? Did you no. ever have any sort of... No, Never conscious? thought about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you ask me today how I felt, I would say no. Still have no feelings. No? Still no. Listen, at the end, when in my, in my life, like, I moved down to South Florida. I lived in Boca Raton for a decade. Tell them why. Why? Yeah. Well, I was a fugitive. Okay. <laughs> um, and so I worked alone and made a lot of money. I did houses. People didn't even know they were robbed. Because <laughs> I never disturbed anything. Right. I keep... Over my life, I used to think how many kids friends got blamed for things missing (laughs) because like I would lloyd the door we used to have a a piece of plastic hard plastic and back then you could lloyd 90% of the doors I could get in again faster with a piece of lloyd than people can with a key what what is that process like what's a lloyd it was a piece of plastic about yay big hard but it was like a credit card it slips in the door lock and you cannot take it you can open the door with it like when you see them with the credit card, yeah. credit mm-hmm. cards really didn't work. I mean, you could occasionally, but right. the credit card didn't wasn't flexible. A piece of Lloyd was. Okay. Mm-hmm. It would move with the lock. And uh, so I would make clean entries, 
not disturb anything. Take what I want it. Yeah, they might it, think they misplaced it or kids don't get right. something. So do you? I don't know. Maybe you're still doing it, but if you if you're if you're not doing it, do you know like like what what was the shift or why did you get out of it? Well, he got old and and life changed. I mean, you can't do that today. It'd be like hunting dinosaurs. You know, I mean, everybody's got cameras. Shit, I got two sets of cameras in my house. Yep. You know, I mean, like a row home got ca- cameras. Mm-hmm. Right. So. And I just got too old for it. I mean, I can't be right. running in the woods anymore. <laughs> like, These guys used to carry. Tell them the tools you carried. When I worked in a, a group, it was like 40 pounds of tools. And you'd be out there in the woods and, and it's cold and it's raining. And, you know, and you're carrying these 40 pounds of sledgehammers and wrecking bars in case you came across a safe. Uh-huh. And it was just, I, I hated it. So how old were you when you were in the wetlands for a couple of days? Well, it was at 71. You know what I mean? Like, I'd have to backtrack. Okay. Yeah, like 30 or so. 30s? Yeah. Yeah, somewhere in that okay. area. Yeah. I was still able to lift a safe. Yeah. <laughs> now I have trouble with lifting this glass. <laughs> Did you ever have to go to the bathroom when you were in the house? No. No? No. You no. roll through. Listen, my average time in the house was less than five minutes. Okay. Unless okay. I was carrying that safe that time. <laughs> but for the most part, yeah, I'm in and out. Uh, any any memorable ones where you opened the safe and you were like, oh, hell yeah, this is going to be a good couple months for me? Well, I, there was a lot of more safe that you opened and said, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one of the last pieces of work I did in Florida. I left the house around 1130. I was back by 1230. The house was relatively close to where I lived because I lived in Boca. And... Uh, the door was unlocked easy parking went in wasn't five feet in the, the house and there was a, a a case sitting there I opened the safe and it was gold coins and cash I left there with $70,000 within 25 minutes wow. holy shit so that was a happy is it hard to unload gold coins and stuff at that point no no you got any I'll buy them off you <laughs> So, so I'm still I'm still buying and selling gold. By the are way, are you? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious. Almost legitimate, <laughs> right? So you're leaving with 70k. What's your next move? Are you going to the bar? Are you? Nah, I went are you home. hiding in the woods? No, what are you home. doing? I went home to my and laid around the pool. So do you have a safe at home that you put it in? I got four safes. No, back then, <laughs> did you have a safe that you put the gold coins in? No. No, Just no. under the mattress. Well, they weren't laying on my floor, that's for sure. <laughs> do, do you still now wander wander through a neighborhood and think, can you look at a house and be like, okay, that's a house I'd hit, that's a house I'd he, like yeah, go? Yeah, he reminisces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's interesting, I tried, I was really good in my mind. I could tell if somebody was there. I could ride down the street and almost know that the people were out. And we could be doing 30 miles an hour in the car, and I could, I could feel it. And and I try to do that mentally today, and I can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have four safes. You easily got into safes. So are you like a connoisseur of impossible to break into safes at your house? It you was a, no, actually, this is the old-fashioned way. They, they, they had no secret easy way to open a safe. It was brute force right. and muscle power. You said earlier you were in Hawaii. Now, was that the Don Ho 
situation. Uh, I want to hear, uh, Alan told us a little bit about this story uh, a a couple months ago, and I'm dying to hear it from the uh, horse's mouth here. All right. So I'm in Hawaii with my wife, uh, who at the time, my, my second wife was a Playboy bunny. Absolutely drop dead gorgeous. Irish girl. So I'm in Hawaii for four months. And now I'm getting a little bored, so I decided I want to do a little piece of work. So Yeah, I mean you're just hanging out with a Playboy bunny in Hawaii. Yeah, I mean yeah. you're bound to get bored. Well yeah, I mean like are you running out of money, you need a, you need to replenish. No, actually a friend of mine gave me his American Express to burn out. Oh nice. And I lived very nice for four months on his card. Nice. Um, I need to find some friends like that. Well, that was back then. He, so, I mean, I'm sure he had a bill that he didn't want to pay. <laughs> so it's easier to claim it was lost. <laughs> so I decided to do a piece of work. And I'm in uh, the Hilton Towers. Now, if anybody ever watched Hawaii Five O, the television show, mm-hmm. you'll see a building. They, they show it often. It's got a rainbow all the way up to the top. The very top of the building in the left-hand corner was Don Ho's condo. I'm just rolling through the penthouses, and I see the the people delivering dry cleaning, and I see Don Ho's name on it. So I knock on the door, and uh, nothing knock again I loitered the door and I'm in and I'm strolling around guy had a, a beautiful condo big carp fishing <laughs> living room as I'm I mean going he's Don Ho of course he's got a, a, a bitchin apartment in yeah. the penthouse suite as I'm going through the, the condo I hear a noise in the back room so I figure you know what let me get out of here so I leave so that night, we're at the Hilton having dinner, and I know he's got a 9 o'clock show. So I said to her, do you want to go over, you want to see Don Ho's apartment? Because it was like unfinished business. <laughs> so I go over, and uh, again, I'm knocking on the door, and, I'm ha- and I figure no, nobody's answered. So I'm trying to lure the door, and I'm having trouble. And I see movement under the 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 door so I tell her get out of here so she takes the elevator I take the steps now this is like 30 floors or something like that I was down the steps before security (laughs) came in they grabbed her oh wow and she managed to talk her way out of it not saying that she just wanted an autograph and the people that were in there was a a housekeeper and they described they, they were under the impression people that did burglaries had grungy clothes. I had this sport jacket on, ascot, the whole bit, you know? <laughs> so, but that night, I moved out of the place I was staying, and the next day I was on a, a plane to Vegas. And that was the Don Ho story. Right. <laughs> Never right. got any money out of them. No. Oh, Dad, that's but, a you, but you were inside for a, a couple seconds. I was in for a couple minutes. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, I was in about three, three or four of the rooms. Now, how, how are you? Uh, how are you hanging out with these beautiful Playboy models? Is that Well, she was actually a Kensington girl, 
that when we were together, she applied for Playboy and was hired on the spot. Okay. I hung out there at Great Gorge and everything. It was, it was fun. Yeah, you went to the Playboy Mansion? In Great Gorge. Okay. Did you Just steal anything when you were there? Huh? Did you steal anything there from the Playboy Mansion? No, but I'll tell you, I got a story for you. <laughs> All right. Being Jewish, back then, the hot spot was the Catskills. Now, everybody couldn't go to the Catskills because you really had to be Jewish. And uh, so I used to go up. What made Catskills easy was everybody ate the same time. So you knew what, and you'd be in the room, you could see what they were wearing at night when they went to the shows. So it gave you a, a heads up. You see, like, the jewelry and stuff? Yeah. Yep. And uh, I made a ton of money in the Catskills. <laughs> I got a better story. We're, I'm in the Catskills. Now, when I was in Hawaii, I had did a couple pieces of work, and I gave my wife some jewelry. I gave her a dome diamond, eight carats. What? Back then. So now I'm in, now I'm in the Catskills. And we're in a, a hotel called the Concord. And we're going to the show. We just had dinner. And you walk by all the concessions, the jewelers. And I'm, I'm looking at this guy's jewelry. And the guy says, that's my ring. I said, nah. <laughs> I said, nah. He said, that's my ring. It's got my initials in it. I said, take the, oh, no. I said, take the ring off, Mary Ellen. And sure enough, it had a BH in it, Bernard Hammerman. He was the designer, but scared the shit out of me. I was trying to figure out how to get, how to get out of the, how to get out of the Catskills. One of the stories that that I always like, I, 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 you know, really underscored it in the book, is when Chick was up in Connecticut, and uh, he goes and pays a visit to the local rabbi. Tell them. Well, we were running around. We didn't really know the area, so I, we were up by a. a a synagogue. So I said, let's stop. I get out of the car. I go in to the rabbi. I said, listen, I'm from Philadelphia. I'm, I, don't, I don't know if I said Philadelphia. I said, I'm moving up here and uh, I'm looking for a predominantly Jewish area. And the rabbi was very Upscale, wealthy Jewish area. Yeah, wealthy Jewish. And the rabbi was very cooperative. He even introduced me to some of the uh, congregation. Oh, this is Dr. Green, and he lives in um, Mount Holly or whatever it was. And that night we were up there visiting Dr. Green. <laughs> yeah. So the rabbi was a conduit. Yeah. Right, right. Chick, you have a Lloyd on you now? Huh? Do you have a Lloyd with you now? Do you always carry one? Nah, around? not anymore. No. The locks are changed. Everything changed. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you have it or not. I mean, you're on camera. Yeah, right. I'm just thinking for sentimental purposes. <laughs> I have one somewhere. Yeah. I still have one, I think. Yeah, you you were a man of your time though. Like you were oh, yeah. yeah, you were you were able to nowadays it would be a whole different ball game. Oh yeah, you can't do any of that. Mm-hmm. No, he'd be a cyber criminal these days. Yeah. No, I don't I have enough trouble programming my phone. <laughs> <laughs> was there any sort of was there any sort of communication between say the the Irish gangsters and the Irish mob or the black gangsters or was there or did everybody kind of operate on their own circuit? Well, you pretty much worked on your own. I mean, I had some affiliation with downtown. Some of the guys like Berkeley was a, a big downtown. He was friends of Angelo and all that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I had a lot of friends from downtown. Mm-hmm. 
did you did you uh, did you ever come across Jerry Blavitt at all? Oh, Jerry was a good friend. Okay, cool. Because it's funny because we were sitting at this, this exact same table. Yeah, with Jerry. But I see Jerry all the time. Could you dance? You have good dance moves. I don't dance. No, even back then. I hung in every club in Philadelphia and never danced. Tell them about the Wampum Bag. Oh yeah, well, you know, I used to get. I used to have a lot of uh, jewelry. Jewelry. <laughs> Knickknacks from the day before, whatever. I used to carry a little bag, small gold chains. Sure, and why not? Earrings. And it, it was more predominant down in Boca. Like, I'd be there at happy hour, and I'd walk up to somebody and say, Hey, are you visiting? Oh, yeah, we're just in from Michigan. And uh, say, You know what? I got something to make you memorable. And I give her a pair of earrings. You want to get a drink? I got a boat. We can go out and watch the sunset. And life was good. <laughs> Did you have a boat? Yeah. Yeah, yeah a 34-foot lure. So why are you here? Why are you back in Philly? <laughs> why, why are you hanging out with the Philly Blood yeah, crew yeah, yeah. at O'Neill's? Well, I, I was actually brought back on Con Air. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> well, tell us a little we bit about that We finally got some one. extradition lined up. Yeah, right. Right. Philly, nah, Philly a- and Florida <laughs> finally uh, made a connection. They said, hey, wait a second. Yeah, so you were, you were on the run there? You were a fugitive there I for 10 years? Fugitive. Yeah, I was a fugitive most of my life. All right, we ready to take it to the uh, wrap it up with the uh, Philly Blunt. Yeah. All right, we're gonna we're gonna hit you with a couple uh, rapid fire questions. <clears throat> Not too fast. I can't think that fast. <laughs> All right. Uh, what is uh, <clears throat> what is your favorite kind of food? Italian. Okay. Yeah. So I'm gonna go with uh, what's your all time favorite Philadelphia restaurant? Philadelphia restaurant. I got a lot of them. A lot of them. All right. Give us some. I, I love hanging down at Rouge and uh, Parks yeah, and Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse sure. Square. If uh, you could have been a pro athlete in any sport, what would it have been? None. No, you weren't no, a I, sports No, I actually played. I actually was really very good at racquetball. Okay. Very good. In fact, I won tournaments. Yeah, where'd, in, you pick up, where'd you pick up racquetball? In jail. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Started with handball, you went, and then you graduated. When you graduated into lower places, mm-hmm. you wound up with a racket. You got a uh, favorite crooner of all time? Well, I mean, I like Snodger, but obviously. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Uh, what was uh, the favorite car you either had or wish you'd had? Well, I had a, a 57 Eldorado bridge convertible I loved. I had a 71 Eldorado convertible I loved. Uh, what's something that scares you? Getting old. If you could have any artist or performer perform at your next birthday, who would it be? L- living or dead? Living or dead? Again, probably Sinatra. Okay. Do you do uh, BLTs or grilled cheese? Both. You got to pick one. Was it, you can only have one the rest of your life. Grilled cheese. Um, Dumb question. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, hey, hey. This is, a, no, no, this is an op-ed section for you here. This is the Blunt Brothers, remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, all right. Well, sure. What's your uh, karaoke song? I don't do karaoke. <laughs> Never have. No? Not even once? No. Uh, tonight. All right, Greg. We're taking them, we're taking them to Chinatown tonight. No, we're doing yeah, get out, karaoke right, with Jane. No, no, you could take Alan. Alan's drinking with Zinfandel. He's probably a karaoke guy. <laughs> Alan, you a karaoke guy? <laughs> Hell no. Come on. Nah. Uh, Chick, you got a favorite book other than Allen's? Well, I, in jail, I read a lot of books. You know, a lot of uh, 
um, John McDonald's and Cowboy Books and mm-hmm. Easy. He has read the section that he's in of my book on the K&A gang innumerable times. Sure. But he's never read the entire book. <laughs> and Just he's busted our chops. Great, great endorsement. Busted yeah. our oh, yeah. chops. I read a whole chapter in City Paper and he's busted my chops. He only read his own chapter. Yeah. Well, I read it. Uh, yeah, I lived it. Why well, don't want to read it? <laughs> All right, Chick, thank you so much for hanging out with us here tonight. My pleasure. Alan, thanks for yeah, so yeah, much for coming good. down. Yeah, uh, now thanks, that guys. You, I mean, this is Alan's second show, I think. I, I like the, I appreciate the Blunt Brothers and, and their interest in, in you know, unique uh, Philly history. Uh, all right, folks, well, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, shout sh- out to O'Neill's. Shout out, yeah, shout out to O'Neill's for having us. This, is, uh, this has been a, a heck of a comeback. Yeah, this, was, this was my Playboy wife. Take it. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) Unreal. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Chick. Uh, Thank you, Alan, so much. Not bad. Not bad, Not bad, sir. Skate one more. I want to thank you so much for hanging out with us tonight. This was a hoot. Appreciate it, guys. Yeah, thanks, Chick. Thank you. See you later. It's the sound of Philadelphia. Brothers covered in blood, the man's office is covered in bugs, the youth dreams cut short.